Hello, and welcome to the Silicon Alley Podcast. Super excited you could join me today. I'm William Glass, CEO and co-founder of Ostrich, and of course, your host of the Silicon Alley Podcast. Now, on the Silicon Alley Podcast, I talk to entrepreneurs and top performers to understand what it truly takes to grow and scale a business. You'll get actionable advice that you can apply in your own business and life. Now, on today's episode, I share an interview that I did with Karen Schweizek on her podcast, Bacon Bits and Bites, discussing the emotional side of money. Now, before I jump into what you can expect on today's episode, if you have not already, please make sure to subscribe and follow the Silicon Alley podcast so that you get notified when a new episode drops every Friday. And of course, if you hear something you like, please be sure to share the podcast with others on social media, text, email, carrier pigeon, or however you prefer. On today's episode, you'll hear a fun interview that I had with Karen Schweizek, host of the Bacon Bits and Bites podcast and co-founder of Kai Begin Connection. If you, her name and voice are familiar, that's because she was on episode 38 of the Silicon Alley podcast titled Don't Just Focus on the Money. So definitely check that out if you have not already. Today, Karen flips the script and interviews me about why financial well-being and financial literacy are so important, as well as the vision for the company that Andrew Holiday and I are building called Ostrich. On that note, Ostrich is actually approaching a public beta release here soon, and we will, of course, give early access to Silicon Alley listeners who want to be the first to join the flock. So be on the listen for further updates in the coming weeks about how you can get VIP early access. Without further ado, I hope that you enjoy today's reversed episode of the Silicon Alley podcast led by Karen Schweizer. You got no time to waste, but still you hesitate. Caught in a circle saying, I'll never leave this place. Ooh. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Beacon Bits Podcast. And today with me, I'm super excited to have William Glass. William is a fintech entrepreneur whose mission is improving financial well-being globally. As founder and CEO of his company, Ostrich, William's mobile app addresses financial literacy deficits by creating social community and accountability around money. Think saving and investing with friends. In addition, William hosts the Silicon Alley podcast, providing a platform for entrepreneurs from all industries and backgrounds to tell their stories. William owns rental property and was a successful tech sales rep before starting his own business. He was also a Fulbright scholar in Thailand. And William is originally from Alabama and now resides in New York City. Welcome to the show, William. Thanks, Karen. So excited to be here and thanks for having me on. Oh, no problem. I'm really excited to chat with you today about um, finances. So given the fact that you were a child actor, what was your relationship like with money growing up? Yeah, that's a, a great question. So growing up, I saw something about money and time that I learned at an early age that has kind of served me and been a philosophy that I've followed um, as I've as I've gotten older. But one example, I guess, is is when I was probably about 11 years old, I did a Cracker Barrel commercial. Um, and so if you're not familiar with Cracker Barrel, it's just a, a, a restaurant chain that serves like Southern food. And uh, it was a day and a half of work and they paid me $2,700 plus any... Um, uh, recurring renewals of the of the piece after two years, and so at the time I didn't quite grasp it. But you know, my dad and my mom were saying, "Do you realize like not many people can make twenty seven hundred dollars in you know in in a day and a half of work?" And so I think understanding that you know there's something to this time versus money and and working hourly versus um, finding ways to leverage your time to to make money that kind of stood out to me. And I think that's what I learned through acting as a child and actually having money in a retirements accounts and things like that at a really young age and 
having the opportunity to kind of pick stocks and things like that, that, you know, not many of my peers were able to do. And that was as I got a little bit older, not when I was 11, but I know I was um, about to say, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm not, not a savant or anything like that. Just, you know, (laughs) curious. So, um, but yeah, I think that's really what I, what I took away is just sort of that you don't have to equate an hourly wage to your earning potential. Mm-hmm. And growing up, did your parents emphasize the importance of saving money? Like, did they talk to you about money in general? I'm just thinking back to my own personal experience, like growing up, um, it was never a conversation really until I was much, much older until I uh, had my first job out of school. Yeah, it was, it was interesting because my mom was, was very frugal. And so she, you know, we, she was very much focused on talking about saving and, and that aspect of it. So I learned a lot from her and Sort of the concept of delay of gratification. I remember in the car as a kid, we she would we'd stop at like a gas station or something. We were on like a long drive or something, and she would get um, like peanut M and M's, and she would put them in front of me. And if if you're familiar, not familiar with delay of gratification, but it's it's exactly what it sounds like. It's um it's this sort of thing where where she would put these M and M's in front of me and say, okay, if you want to have two M and M's, you can have two now, or if you wait five minutes, I'll give you five. You know, and so I was like, of course I'm gonna wait. Like, I want more M and M's. Like, and that was kind of, <laughs> kind of my mindset. And so I didn't realize it at the time, but the delay of gratification, especially when it comes to, to money, and in the sort of the the culture that we're in, which is the instant generation of buy this, buy this now. You need this. You deserve it now. Being able to like delay that impulse decision and think about it and realize, well, maybe I don't need these things. So in terms of like what I learned as a kid, it wasn't an overt conversation about money and finances. Um, it was just sort of like these little things that I, that I cued into. And, you know, and we probably get into this later, but, you know, finances is a big reason why my parents got divorced. And so they had different philosophies about it. And, you know, we didn't really talk about it, but that really spurred my interest as I got older in high school and then, you know, into college and beyond about learning more about finances. Cause I could see, I saw the damage of what it, of what it could do when you just don't have the conversations and aren't on the same page. Mm-hmm. And did this kind of help fuel the idea for ostrich, which I love the name by the way, because auto- <laughs> automatically you think, you know, like burying your head in the sand, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it absolutely did. And it's, it's something that it started from that sort of idea of like, there's got to be a better way to do this. And then over the next, whatever, 10, 15 years of just like exploring all the different apps and ways that you can invest real estate and stocks and like all these different things and making plenty of mistakes along the way. Um, it was kind of like, all right, there's, there's something missing in the market. And that's sort of where ostrich came from. And yeah, you cued in on the, the sort of visual of head in the sand um, that, we're, that, we're, that we're going for, of trying to help, uh, help pull people's heads out of the sand when it comes to money and finances. Because I think that's one of the things that we just overcomplicated. And in reality, you know, as a kid, using going back to the M&Ms, if, uh, if something costs six M&Ms and I only had five, like I, I wouldn't be able to buy that, you know, like we can conceptually understand those things um, at a young age, but we complicate it when we add in credit and all kinds of other stuff that I think just we, we overcomplicate finances when in reality, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty simple if you boil it down to the basics. Mm-hmm. And I know there are a lot of reasons behind this, but what do you think are some of the reasons people tend to like put their head in the sand when it comes to finances? Yeah. So obviously we don't, we don't really teach personal finance in, in schools. And you know, there is a little bit of a push of some states, I think Florida recently did it, and there's probably about like 20-ish states that require 
or have some sort of financial literacy type offering. And that's great, but if you look at the folks who are teaching it, and I've had this conversation, so my girlfriend is a, is a teacher and we've talked about this, the issue is that the folks that are teaching these courses are just teachers that were said, hey, you know, you, don't ha you have an extra free period, go teach personal finance. And they're like, I don't know anything about personal finance. And you know, so we, we have this problem where we're not educating folks in the US and then you know, globally from the conversations uh, that I've had with folks overseas in Germany and Colombia and, and things like that, it seems to be a pretty common issue. And if you have really good parents or you have a, an aunt or uncle or someone that's really knowledgeable about this stuff, that's how you learn it typically or making mistakes. And so you know, I think that's the first sort of challenge when it comes to when it comes to finances and why people's head are in the sand is because we're not taught about it. And we're encouraged, especially in the United States, to go take out a ton of debt at the age of 17 or 18, take out $200,000 in debt because, you know, it's the right thing to do. You got to go to college. You got to get a degree without any thought of whether kids know what they, degree they want to get, what they want to pursue, if they're interested in it, and if, and if they're ever going to be able to pay that off. Um, so I think it really starts with that. And um, then, you know, misconceptions about how complex finance is, which, there definitely are some complexities, but in reality, again, if you boil it down to the basics, it's, it's just, are you bringing in more money than you're spending? And that's kind of the, the baseline. Yeah, and I remember um, as a kid growing up, there were no courses or there was no talk about financial literacy. And I completely agree with you 100% that it needs to be taught to the younger generation because you know when you're young, you're like a sponge. And if you can develop good habits when you're young, you'll be able to carry those um, throughout adulthood. Yeah, you're spot on, Karen. Yeah, you're spot on. All right. So I'd like to talk about the process of building ostrich. So um, I, th I think there are two schools of thought when it comes to building business. Sometimes people, they tend to jump into it right away, uh, full time. And then other people, they tend to spend um, a couple of years or so building the business on the side uh, while working full time. So you did the latter. And what was your reason for um, building it on the side initially? before going full-time? Yeah, so <laughs> I guess to clarify, it's a little bit of both I would actually feel like I fall into. So the idea okay. <laughs> for, yeah. So the idea for Ostrich, I got in 2017 when I was um, working in sales at a, at a company called Gartner, their big IT research advisory firm. And I was working with startups and I was seeing a lot of folks that were really successful in sales. There were people that were, that were really doing well and yet they were still struggling financially because they were going out and buying a brand new truck or going on these like lavish vacations. And then you'd see other people and there's other people that are in like the fire community. And if you're not familiar with fire, it's financial independence, retire early. So folks that essentially live super, super frugally and um, try to retire at a very early age. And I saw folks like that at the age of 33 were like, I'm done. I don't need this job anymore. And they walked away and, you know, are doing all kinds of fun stuff. So I saw this, this sort of dynamic. And at the same time, I was using a lot of the different fintech apps that are out there. So, you know, big fan of Mint and Credit Karma. Credit Karma was kind of the first one that I like hooked into because I was one of those people, you know, even for, for spending a lot of time in personal finance, I, uh, I, you know, I didn't get a credit card until the age of like 20. So I didn't have any credit, which makes it really difficult to make purchases, get a lease, all these things after <laughs> uh, that you need, you just have to have credit. And so you know, I think it was a, a combination of, of all these things. 
And I was using these apps and they were, they were helpful to a degree, but you know, Mint has never worked properly. It doesn't categorize things. I'll transfer one thing from another account and it says I made a crazy amount of money. And it's like, can't you see that it's just not in this account anymore? And it's over here. Like you're supposed to be able to read this stuff. And you know, some of the automation tools are great, but it doesn't change the, the habits um, and the, the emotional side of money is the, is the thing that was missing. So like we make emotional choices for logical reasons. And we rationalize those through all these different things. But at the end of the day, we're emotional creatures, we're emotional beings, and nothing was sort of addressing that underlying habitual decision-making process. And so that's where the idea for Ostrich came from. And I wrote a business plan in 2017 and would you know, work on the idea with a, and, and spread it out to a couple of friends. And then I would lose it for two months and just kind of forget about it and get busy with work or other things and then come back to it. Um, but I always came back. And finally, after moving to New York and having worked at uh, another startup, I hit the point where it's like, all right, there's something here. I've got enough validation points. I, at this point, had connected with another friend who was in New York City who was in finance and portfolio valuation, um, Andrew Holiday. And him and I were like, all right, we've got to do this. So I left at that point. And because I had been living really frugally, I had plenty of cash in the bank to live off of savings and still be able to invest in the business. So when I say it was sort of like I took a dual approach, I worked on the idea and started to get validation points. And then finally hit that breaking point where it's like, all right, we've got to, we got to build this thing. We've got enough validation. There's a need in the market and we've just got to give it a go. Yeah. That was May of 2019 that we started Ostrich and We've been uh, chugging along, definitely making mistakes uh, along the way, but uh, we're getting close and uh, going to be ready to launch in this next quarter. So it's exciting stuff. Mm-hmm, indeed. And with respect to talking points, uh, you share that you turned down a $60,000 angel investment. And what were your reasons for turning it down? And did you find it hard to walk away from that kind of money? <sighs> Yes and no. There's, uh, there's this site called Co-Founders Lab, and there's a couple of these out there, like AngelList is similar to, but Co-Founders is where you can try to find co-founders. And you know, I'm not inherently technical by nature, and Andrew is more focused on the financial world specifically. And so we were looking for someone that had that strong tech backbone that we needed. And we ended up connecting with this investor on there, and he was based in the UK, and you know, it was really exciting. You know, he wanted to invest in us. And, you know, at this point we, we hadn't left, I hadn't left my job yet. And Andrew still hadn't, he actually left about six months after I did um, in November of 2019. So at this point we had been working on the idea and all that stuff, but we actually hadn't even left full time. Um, So it was definitely really hard to, to walk away from it, but there were some red flags and the terms of the deal were really what stuck out to us. And then also the fact that this um, investor was based in the UK and we were both in New York City. And so, you know, being first time founders, we wanted more of a partner that we could kind of connect with in person or just have more access to. You know, this, this investor as well was, was sort of early on, you know, he'd been angel investing for a couple years and had had a couple successes, but nothing had been, he doesn't have investments long enough to say, you know, hey, here's some widely successful companies. And uh, a couple other terms of the deal was that, you know, there were some things like we had to use his um, development company to lower his risk. Cause he's like, you know, I'm investing in, uh, in you guys and there's some risk for me. So to, you know, limit my downside is rather than you guys build it or hire someone else, we're going to use my development firm and we're going to use my marketing company, which, 
you know, makes sense if you look at it from his lens. Uh, but for us, we just didn't want to give away that amount of control. And, you know, I think that's, that, <laughs> that's why we ended up walking away. Um, it just wasn't, it just wasn't a fit and we didn't get, we weren't super excited about the offer. Initially we, we were cause someone was interested, but when we took a step back to like really think about what we needed and what would move us forward, it, it just wasn't a fit. So yeah, it was, it was tough, but it, it definitely, I think was the right decision for us at the time. Mm-hmm, for sure. Sometimes you just have to listen to your gut and see what it is saying. And more often than not, it is right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And you've, you've got to figure out what it is you, you truly need, right? Because someone else, that was probably the, the perfect deal. You know, like it limits your risk. You've already got someone that's investing in the company and you haven't left your job yet and all that stuff. But to us, that, those were red flags. And it was just, it was just interesting. So as the uh, non-technical founder of a tech company, have you ever felt like the pressure to become more technical? So I'm just curious to know how you guys manage the technical aspect of the platform itself. Oh, absolutely. Um, so I've spent time on like free code camp and some of those <laughs> things and learning, you know, starting with HTML and CSS and then moving into JavaScript. And uh, by the way, I, have, I still don't know how to code, but I understand some of the concepts and I think one of the things that Andrew and I did is we we've have a couple technical co-found uh, not co-founders but advisors, mm-hmm. and that's been what helped us. So early on, right out of the gate, we got a technical advisor, and he was super helpful in terms of not allowing us to make a silly decision. And you know that was extremely helpful. And so we, I think I've talked to close to twenty different dev shops: U.S., Canada, Philippines. Um, Ukraine, all just everywhere, pretty much everywhere um, in every country. And I've learned so much from every single conversation over that time, having those conversations and starting to understand, okay, well, how, how does this company work? How does this one work? And there's so many different business models out there when it comes to, to potential development partners, um, but definitely have felt the, the need to be more technical. And actually, you know, we were looking at no code platforms. So there's no code platforms that are very similar to sort of like website builders that most people use today, like a Wix or a Squarespace or even WordPress now with uh, some of the plugins that they have. So you can build websites and web and mobile apps visually. Now the downside is that you're not able to, you know, do as much of the customization and you're kind of limited to the, the features that are, that are out of the box, so to speak. Um, so we looked at some of those and uh, recently we actually have gone with a no-code platform that we found that just was been enterprise only for the last 10 years and just rolled out like two months ago when we were about to make a decision on hiring a dev shop. And I've actually been able to build the platform to the degree that we want because they've, they've done some different innovations where it's flexible enough but also simple enough that, uh, that as long as you understand some computer science terms um, and things like that and how stuff should work, you, uh, you can build stuff without coding. And so definitely have felt a push to get more technical and have gotten a lot more technical over this last couple of years. Yeah, that's really great advice, um, especially I think for people who, who are passionate about tech and want to build um, a tech-focused company, but feel that the lack of experience might hinder them. Like the fact that you mentioned getting a technical advisor early on helped you guys. And then also looking into things such as no-code platforms. Yeah, absolutely. And pretty much every dev shop, if you're early stage, you don't have, you haven't raised a bunch of cash. They're all going to quote you roughly the same price. You know, it's all going to be somewhere between 25 to 50K. That's where they're all going to land. No matter what features you throw at them, no matter whatever, whatever it is, 
I've seen it across the board. We've changed our specs so many different times and everyone falls in that same range because they really don't know. They don't know until they start building it, until you start changing or you want certain features more complex because you know, we say we want chat in an application. Think about it. WhatsApp is its own chat app itself, but building WhatsApp would take ages because it's so it's it's such a robust chat feature. So yeah, those those are some of the things that we've <laughs> that we've learned. What I love about uh, the app as well, when I was looking at the site, is that you have a lot of fun financial challenge and even like the names alone like a couple of them that stuck out to me was uh drop it like it's hot so suggesting to drop a few of the the subscriptions and then also my love for you is priceless uh having to do with getting engaged and weddings so how do you come up with the ideas for this challenge and also what is your favorite challenge <laughs> oh that's a great question yeah i mean i think that's the other thing we're focusing we're trying to focus on the emotional side of money right and we got to, you got to make it fun. Like everything's so numbers and logic driven right now in the industry. And that's where I think we're really trying to, to get, come up with more fun ways that fit into how people's lives are. Cause it's easy to think about, Hey, like I'm going to get engaged and I need to save for an engagement ring or I need to save for a wedding. And uh, yeah, so just trying to come up with, with fun, fun ideas that fit into to people's lives. Um, in terms of favorite names, I think drop it like it's hot is, is up there um, as one of the top, one of my favorites. Frugal Fall is, is the first one that we ran. So we actually tested these challenges using tools that were already out there, like Facebook groups and things like that to validate our idea. And that was the first one that we ran and had a lot of success with and learned a ton. So I think that one, even though it's probably not the funniest or most clever name, is just the most meaningful. So with respect to money mistakes, can you share uh, what was your biggest money mistake if you have one? Yeah. I made a lot of money mistakes over the years. <laughs> I think one that really stands out that I think will hit home for a lot of people. I'll, I'll share two. One is more focused on, well, actually, they're both me being naive. Um, one was in college during the summer. I was trying to figure out a way to make more money. And I was like, okay, what can I do? Like I'm doing, I'm already working at a sushi restaurant. How can I like leverage my time more and make more money? And I ended up spending, I think it was like 600 bucks on a um, surveys type like platform. And first off, if you have to pay money to get on one of these survey sites where you watch ads and all that kind of stuff, and then they pay you to like give feedback, you shouldn't have to pay to do that. There are legitimate sites where you can do that and actually make money answering surveys and things like that. But that was just me like typing in Google and clicking on the first thing without actually doing any research because it was just like, all right, this is easy. Like I can like passively like watch whatever TV commercials and like make money or whatever. And um, so that was one. The other one, so I, I bought a rental property and great decision, by the way. So that's, that in itself is not a bad decision, but one of the things that happened is it's in Florida. Um, so I was living in Florida when I was at Gartner and there was Hurricane Irma that came through in 2017. And luckily my property was, was spared. Pretty much the whole neighborhood was flooded. And for whatever reason, my street was not so very thankful there, but I did have a shed and this wasn't just like a, you know, pop-up shed. It was like a legit built structure with electricity and all kinds of stuff. And a huge tree had fallen on it and had like damaged the roof. And I ended up getting a, I think it was just like someone in the neighborhood that had essentially been out of work, but they were a contractor to cut the tree down. And they were like, you know, actually we can fix this. And me just being naive, first time, you know, landlord managing the property myself. And like they did a good job cutting down a tree and getting rid of it. But 
I was looking at it and I was like, I don't know, like it kind of looks like the, the foundation is a little off. And so I spent, I think it was like $1,500 to $1,200 trying to get this thing fixed. And the guy just ran away with the money. He would come back, do a little bit of work and then be like, ah, I need more for this. And like at the end, I was just like, this guy is not, this just isn't working. And so like I was buying materials instead of giving him the money um, towards the end. And even that just, he wasn't showing up. And I was like, this guy is, is just not going to do it. So I ended up making that mistake. And, um, you know, it was a, a good lesson of just because it seemed easy and someone said they could do it and me not, you know, really, really doing the due diligence that I should have. Um, that was a, that was a big mistake. Mm. And on the flip side, what was the best financial advice you've ever received? Best financial advice. So I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and I think that got me into, into taking thinking about how to get on the sort of owner, uh, business owner and investor side of the quadrant. So Robert Kiyosaki talks about there's this kind of like quadrant and most folks spend their time on the employee side where they are, they are giving away time for money, right? You are working an hourly job, even a salaried job, um, but you have a set amount of money that you can make. And then some folks move into the self-employed where they, you know, own their job. They're still the ones that are at the bakery making, you know, all the loaves of bread if they're a baker, that sort of thing. But if you can get onto the other side of that, that quadrant where you're in the investor side where money is working for you or where you own businesses that you don't have to spend the time in and other people are growing the company. Um, that's where you really get leverage. And so I think understanding that concept that time doesn't equal money in terms of how you earn it. I think that's the best, the best advice. Because if you conceptually understand that, that opens up so many opportunities to you. And I think that's the key. So speaking of businesses, um, I'm just thinking back towards the 2008 financial crisis where a lot of big names we know now, such as like WhatsApp, Pinterest, Instagram, and Venmo, they were started not too long after the financial crisis. And given the fact that we're now in a different type of crisis like the pandemic, however, it is affecting the economy as well. Um, do you think now is a good time to start a business or like think about starting a business? I think so. I mean, I think there's right now more than ever, people are, are wanting change, right? You hear it, you hear it where people are fed up with the, the system. We're trying to create different ways to pay people out as well. Like we learned lessons from 2008 of giving money just to financial institutions to help lubricate the economy to now, the, to now you know, Congress and the CARES Act. Um, giving money directly to people. And, and you see companies now going to this remote culture and people enjoying the remote sort of opportunities for folks that, that, are, that are lucky enough to be in jobs where they can work remote. Coming out of, out of this, people are going to be looking for change, open to new opportunities and new ways of doing things. So if you have an idea or you see a problem that no one's, no one's really solved at this point, I think it's a great opportunity to create businesses. And the thing is, there's a ton of money still in the economy. Yes, we see that like certain industries are, hurt, are hit really hard and things are, you know, are definitely tough financially, especially for, for folks that have lost jobs. But when you look at the folks that have money and financial institutions and things like that, the way that we are stimulating the economy is giving those investors, those banks, those institutions, the money to lend out when in previous recessions and and uh, downturns, you know, everyone has stopped giving money to startups or to businesses in general. And um, I think those, that combination of 
the opportunity with folks wanting to change the way things are being done, as well as the fact that there's still actually a ton of a ton of dry powder, you know, money in the economy to be invested in innovative businesses. Now is is an absolutely wonderful time to do that. So yeah, I, I agree. I think it's just a it's just a great time. Just like in 2008, um, there's a ton of opportunity there as well. And do you think there will be a lot more fintech companies being started? I think so. I think I think just in especially like you know the capitalist sort of thought process, like it's all around money. So there's definitely going to be more fintech companies created. And my hope is that there's more fintech companies that actually do something different. So we've had this like sort of wave of fintech companies that have that have um, come out, right? We had the the first ones that sort of um, took things online and made things digital. And that was really awesome, like payment processors like PayPal and things like that, which was, which was great. You didn't have to pay in cash anymore, have to like mail a check, things like that. And then we've kind of moved into this more utility style fintech where on the consumer side, at least, where you're able to see your bank accounts and budgeting tools and things like that, which are really, really helpful. But I think we need to move into this next stage of fintech where we're actually creating innovative products versus just bringing everything digital as well as addressing, again, the emotional side and financial literacy. Like we still haven't really tackled that problem. Um, so I think fintech companies will be started, um, especially if you look at like, if you start to wrap in cryptocurrency and like the whole um, you know, blockchain aspect of fintech, um, there's definitely going to be a lot more fintech companies. And there's always an interest, I think, from an investor perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I agree with you on um, the importance of focusing more on the emotional side of money because money does bring up a lot of emotions depending on who you're talking to. Like a lot of people tend to say like money can't buy you happiness, but I'm part of the camp and, may, and I'm assuming that you are too, is that it can buy you happiness in that like it provides opportunities and then opportunities provide freedom and money can be used as like a tool. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think, yeah, you're spot on. Like the, the tool aspect I think is, I think is the key. We, we put so much value and money in terms of like our, our net worth and we compare ourselves to other people and all that kind of stuff. And I'll tell you what, like <laughs> building a, uh, building a company right now that has no revenue, my net worth has been going down, right. You know, over the last year, year or so, but I, I am happier than I've ever been right now because I've been able to focus on building something meaningful. And again, you know, long-term, obviously, hopefully this will make a lot of money. Um, you know, that's one of the things that we want to do is, is align our success with our users' success and, and help them be successful. And by helping them be successful, we'll also be successful. But yeah, no, I think money, money as a tool is spot on and that emotional side is, is so, so clutch. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, and what I thought was also really interesting that has to do with your app is that you've recently launched the Share for Shares where people can earn shares in the company through referrals. And the reason why I thought it was really interesting because from what I understand in the very early stages of a company, it's usually limited to the founders, the first few employees and investors. They don't normally um, give that offer shares to the public. So could you go into more detail regarding this program? Yeah, absolutely. So we were trying to think of how can we truly align our, our besides just, you know, saying that we're aligning our success with our user, user success, how can we actually do that? And, um, you know, there's some programs out there, like Robinhood has uh, their sort of, you share their, their app and you get a share in a random company that's on the stock exchange sort of thing. Um, and so we were thinking, well, why not actually bring in the the folks that are early adopters that are going to essentially make or break our application 
um, and our company, bring them in as shareholders. And so we carved out, a, you know, it's, it's a small piece of equity, but we carved out a small percentage of the company that we're actually going to allow users to earn shares in the company by referring folks. So we, we still have like swag and those things that you would expect in a sort of like referral program as you hit certain milestones, but we're actually giving away a share at each milestone as well. So we can not only just you know, say that we're, we're helping folks and through the value of the application, but we're actually aligning our success with our, our user success. And so, you know, I think it's the only thing out there that we've seen. We did a lot of research to try to figure out how to do this. And, uh, you know, there's been companies that would give away uh, like through a raffle or something like that. But on a programmatic basis, I think we're the only company that's, that's doing something like this. So we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I mean, like, I've, I've never heard of it either. So I, I, I thought it was really cool. And I've actually also signed up myself because I really like the idea of helping startups build may not necessarily like directly helping, you know, build the actual product itself, but just kind of being part of it. And then when you think about those people who invested into, say, for example, like Apple or Facebook early on, and then now look at like how much their stock is worth. So <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. So there's, yeah, there's definitely a financial upside if we do really well, obviously if we don't do well, then, you know, it, it is what it is, but it's such a low barrier to entry, entry to, to share, you know, to share ostrich with other people that, um, you know, we feel it's a, it's a great value, a value add and opportunity for folks. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was also just thinking too of people who um, are intimidated by investing or don't know where to start, but want to kind of like dabble into it. I think, um, you know, participating in the share for shares program is also another interesting way to say like invest in a company. Yeah, absolutely. I, I hadn't thought of it that way, but yeah, you, you are an investor essentially in the, in the company. And so it's definitely, you know, we're not, you can't trade anything, <laughs> you know, because we're not listed, but uh, yeah, it's definitely a, a, definitely another way beyond just, you know, dabbling in the stock market or other or other ways of of uh, diversifying your portfolio. Uh, and again, just like talking about like your mission statement, I and I really think it's amazing how you highlight that it's not just about the number crunching because as we were saying like I think a lot of people tend to think uh, finances can be really dry and it's complex and there's a lot of numbers, but really um, for some people it can be staying accountable and like you, you guys building this community, you know, like saving and investing with friends because, you know, of course, now that we can't even really do that much stuff, like hopefully by the time uh, your product launches, we can. But again, it's something to look forward to, like you're reaching goals together with your friends. And I think a lot of the times why people don't like to talk about money with their friends is that um, they're, they're embarrassed or like, you know, say if your friend, for example, say, Hey, let's do this. Let's go on vacation. Let's go to this fancy restaurant. But you feel, you know, you, you can't be open and transparent about them just because of your financial situation. And a thing, again, just kind of reiterating the fact that it, it's really innovative that you decide to focus on the emotional side. Like we're doing this together. We're getting rewards together. Or even like, I'm thinking like friendly competitions, like, Oh, I, I want to get to the next level. I want to beat you and you know get that badge. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Yeah, bringing in that collaborative competitive nature is exactly exactly what we're going for. And, you know, we still understand that some people are, are going to be hesitant. And like, it, it's a taboo topic. Like, you know, some, some folks are really comfortable sharing and have no issues talking about money. And others, it's like the worst thing in the entire world to think about. So we've, uh, we put some stuff in place as well, like not disclosing actual dollar figures, but using like percent to goal. So that way, like if you have a friend that is, in finance and makes, you know, a ton of money, six, six plus figures or whatever. And then someone who's a teacher, they can still, 
you know, work towards their goals because their goals are personal to you. But if you're comfortable sharing those, feel free. But the, the, the app is set up so that, uh, that everyone, no matter, you know, where you kind of fall on the earning scale or where you are in your, in your uh, financial journey, so to speak, you can uh, all work together. So with respect to uh, collaboration strategy and, you know, using gamification, do you think companies should look more into using that strategy as well to be successful? Or do you think it depends on uh, the type of company? Because I've, I've been seeing a lot. And I just think also to say, for example, like Starbucks, you know, like getting rewards so you can get that next uh, mocha froca. I can't even yeah. <laughs> say that mocha cappuccino. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, gamification is definitely, I think, a part of everything. If, if you don't care about Starbucks that much, the gamification isn't going to matter. But to folks that like really do and want to have the rewards, I'm sure it, it works. So I think that we've kind of, you know, gamifying things is, is almost like a, it's almost like table stakes at this point to some degree. You know, you see it in pretty much every, as you said, like restaurant rewards app now, coffee, coffee folks, they all, they all have it. Um, and if you look at social media, like what has social media done? It's essentially brought sort of like the casino of likes and views and all that stuff. And like, there's a notification here and a notification there and a story here and all that kind of stuff. It works. Um, so the, the idea is that hopefully more people use gamification for good versus, versus uh, you know, sort of negative outcomes. But I think it's, I think it's just table stakes, honestly, at this point. All right. So my final question is, if you could have lunch or coffee with any entrepreneur, who would it be and why? Lunch or coffee with any entrepreneur? Or your top two? <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I'm, well, I would, I want to say that I would sit down with Warren Buffett and I'm a big, big Buffett fan. I've been to, this year didn't go obviously because of Corona, but the last two years, one of my friends and I have gone to the shareholders meeting. So like I bought a couple shares of the B, I don't have $300,000 lying around, but a couple, a couple shares of their, the Berkshire Hathaway B shares and have gone to Omaha for their shareholders meeting, which is, which is really incredible. And like, getting to hear Warren Buffett, one of the greatest investors and entrepreneurs, I think, you know, in terms of the model that they run, they're super lean from a corporate perspective of, you know, they have like 50 or 60 employees top and they're one of the largest, one of the top 10 largest companies in the entire world. And they, they do that through just allowing the, the managers of their businesses to, to run. So I think I would sit down with, with him more so to, to kind of understand how that aspect works than uh, than anything because i think he's pretty transparent about his philosophy of how to buy companies and that sort of thing but from an entrepreneur perspective he also is one of the reasons inspired me to start the company when we did as well for ostrich it was like he started berkshire hathaway or his investing arm when he was 26 and that was something that i wanted to do so i was like i got a birthday coming up so like i need to we need to found this thing andrew let's go <laughs> rather than just working on the side so that's uh i think it would definitely be warren for that reason warren buffett Awesome. And it's interesting that you mentioned you attended a shareholders meeting because um, I also invest in companies too. So I've received those notices and I was always like curious to go or just had this weird assumption that it was only meant for executives or people who are higher up. So it's, it's kind of cool that you went to it and you got a good experience out of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I, I will say, I think Berkshire Hathaways is probably unique compared to other, other, uh, other company shareholder meetings from my, is my guess. Um, there's 40,000 people that get jam packed into um, the CenturyLink Center, Center, which is, you know, this just big arena and, you know, everyone's quiet listening to Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger answer questions for, you know, 
six, seven hours, which is just insane. I, like you can hear a pin drop and there's 40,000 people. I've never been with that many people and everyone just quiet and listening. So I think it's definitely unique in terms of a, of a shareholder meeting, but I haven't been to any other, so I can't comment. Well, thank you so much for uh, chatting with me today. It was really fun to geek out over finances because I, I love talking about this stuff too. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely, Karen. And I really appreciate you having me on. And, you know, I, I love what you're doing with Making the Bacon and the podcast and Bacon and Bits. And it's just incredible that you're, that you're have this platform and are giving folks voices and starting to talk about these things because I think it's so important. Um, the more that we talk about money, finances, and and all that sort of stuff. I think it's it's how we it's how we change the narrative and the sort of dominant culture of all the stuff's taboo. Mm-hmm, for sure. That's it for today's episode of the Silicon Alley Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed the interview from the Bacon Bits and Bites podcast, which is available wherever you listen to podcasts. So definitely check it out. Karen has some great guests on there and a couple of particular ones that I like having to do with some of the VCs that she had on recently. I had a lot of fun getting to open up to you and I hope that you enjoyed it as well. On your way out, if you happen to listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, please click on the show page in the Apple Podcast app, scroll past all of the recent episodes and towards the bottom, you can leave an honest rating and review. Your feedback is really important to me. And of course, great ratings help others find the podcast. That's it for today. I'm William Glass, CEO and co-founder of Ostrich and of course, your host of the Silicon Alley Podcast. Have a financially fruitful day. You got no time to waste, but still you hesitate, caught in a circle.